Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of the Started Up Podcast. During another episode from the, the thing you hear there in the back is, is the beach. You hear the waves here in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Uh, we've been brought out uh, with, uh, with the Aspen Institute. Uh, Cordell Carter brought us together. And Dr. Murray is our guest today. I already told you this in person, Dr. Murray. Uh, I may call you Jose from, from here on out. Um, read your bio, and he says, here's one of the guys you're on the panel with. And I immediately was like, oh, crap. Because I'm not going to pretend to be an expert in anything. And you've been... Uh, you've been in a lot of areas, and we'll get into that. On uh, like from a guy that's a has a background and a medical background in, in radiology, and now a ton of other things. Uh, I found that intriguing, uh, but I want to focus a little bit today on, on Web three and some of the applications, especially what you're seeing in the medical world. Sure. Uh, but before we jump into that, give us a little bit of background: how you got here, upbringing, and and, and why you're here. Oh well, first of all, thank you, Don for bringing me on to the podcast. Thank you, Cordell, and the Festival of the Diaspora for bringing such amazing people together. And welcome to Puerto Rico. Welcome to my island. Uh, I was born here. I was raised here uh, until I was about seven or eight. Uh, then I left uh, Puerto Rico and moved to Florida. My parents took me to Florida. Uh, Dad was an engineer. He's from Dominican Republic. Mom's Puerto Rican. They met here at University of Puerto Rico. Uh, grew up the rest of my life in Puerto, well, in Florida, but would come to Puerto Rico to spend time with my grandparents, make sure I didn't forget the culture, the foods, very important from a Hispanic community and from Puerto Rico specifically. Um, and then I went to undergrad med school in Tampa, went to University of South Florida, did medical school there. So go Bulls, if there are any Bulls that are listening to this. Um, and then I did my postdoc up in the Northeast. I went to Johns Hopkins University for medicine in Baltimore. Uh, then I went to New York where I did my radiology residency at Staten Island Hospital, part, part of Northwell system now for all you Northeasterners that are out there. Um, and then I did a fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and it was really that fellowship that got me interested in tech. So I was going from being straight medical, um, just private practice, that's what I thought I was gonna be doing, to getting into AI and technology, and really the sky's the limit. Well, that opened up so many doors for me. The first consultant gig that I got, you know, there weren't many people with an MD that were doing artificial intelligence when I started doing it. Now it's, you know, we have hundreds of AI applications that are FDA approved. There are so many startups that have come out of it. Uh, at that time, IBM had, didn't even have a Watson Health division yet. You know, now that's late, that's been sold and already stripped away from IBM. But at, when I started, it wasn't there, and I was doing a lot of consultancy work for hospitals, creating AI applications, data analytics, evaluating, doing predictive analytics, prescriptive analytics. And I was at a conference. IBM saw some of the things I was doing, and they asked me to come work with them on Watson. You know, after one of my talks, they said, "Hey, would you? We love what you're doing. We've been looking for physicians to help us do these things." They let me know that they were looking to get into into healthcare AI, and they said, "Would you be willing to help us develop some of these algorithms?" I was like heck yeah, I'd love to work with IBM Watson. That'd be so cool. Um, so I took that as, I started with them as a consultant. And wait, 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 wait a second. No, no fear or, or like imposter. Like, like this was, had you had a little bit of background in this or was this like just a fun new adventure that you're like, yeah, this sounds cool. Like I, I just, I had to stop. Like, you're like, yeah, this sounds great. Like how does one have this focus yeah. In radiology, and you're like, yeah, let's go work with Watson and AI stuff. Like, that's that's crazy. So the way it started was, it was towards the end of my residency. 
I never thought I was going to be doing any sort of research whatsoever. I thought I was just doing straight clinical medicine. But I decided my last year of radiology, it was really kind of a bet that I was, there was another resident that always did a lot of research and he was very, very lazy and everything else. And, that, and he said he was lazy and everything else because he was doing so much research and he did. But I was, I, you know, we got into a confrontation. I said, you know what? No, you're just lazy. You're just lazy. That's what you are. And so I said, I could do as much research as you and still do the rest of my job, you know? So I started doing a bunch of research just just to prove a point. It was just, that was it. And that year I went to China. I went to all over the world presenting all these types of research I was doing. And the thing that I fell in love with was actually data. I found the amazing thing about data, of what you could do with data, the fact that you could see the past and you could start predicting the future with it. And I was just mesmerized by that ability. And I started getting more into entrepreneurship and that's why I decided to go to Penn uh, because my buddy was going to the Warden School at the time and they were doing, a, they had just started Innovation Center at the hospital and I wanted to be around that ecosystem of how do you use technology, specifically data, to start predicting the future, prescripting the future, and that's really where I started learning about convolutional neural networks, about artificial intelligence, machine learning, and it was really self-taught. And then I started using those applications to actually help improve hospitals. And I was, I would go into the hospital and I would say, hey, I can build a team that can fix your problem with data. And I was an MD, so it brought a certain degree of respect to a hospital system, as opposed to if someone with a PhD or someone that just could code said, oh, I can do that. I'm like, eh, they don't really understand what you're trying to solve. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can imagine somebody not in medical, like, well, and I guess in your world, having no bedside manner. Right. Like, so like, oh, I've got a plan. You're like, you've never been in a hospital. So I, I, I get that. I, I'm going to jump right in now um, on some of the Web3 applications uh, for those of like, you know, people wanna, on the podcast. You want to hear about NASA or about anything? Oh, I do eventually. I do eventually. No, yeah. And, and singularity and everything else. But like you, you were saying today about how Web3 people are going to own their own medical records, that they're going to be able to have control over some of the records. First of all, weigh in on that because I've got a follow-up question. Yeah, I mean, if you look at healthcare today, obviously the U.S. is one of the leaders in healthcare. If you look at the way the system is based, right now healthcare is just like every other system, whether it's social media, whether it's search, you don't own your data. Those, those ecosystems and those industries were created by other companies and then they've allowed us to access the internet or allowed us to access social media or allowed us to access healthcare through the systems and through the infrastructure they've created. Web3 is really about power. It's, it's about the power of consent, about allowing you to have that power to say, yes, I want my data to be used for that or no, I want, I want the right to be forgotten. And the flip side is that from a commercial perspective, the big, the big architecture of healthcare, whether it's hospital systems, whether it's big pharma, whether it's big tech, because big tech is in uh, healthcare as much as anybody else. Amazon is in it, Google is in it, IBM was in it. What we would do to go out, and all the companies do this, and people, people get upset, but they can do this, is so you go out to any hospital system and you can purchase people's data 
to create anything you want with that data because that data does not belong to the individuals. It is of the individual, but it does not belong to the individual. Just like when you go, I'm sure every, people that are listening have been sick and have had to go get their records. If you want to go get your records, you have to ask permission if you can have access to your data. That is, that is your personal data. They know, they know if you have an STD. They know if you have a mental health disorder. They know if you, you know, what, they, know, they see the inside of you. You have CT scans, MRIs, and you have to ask. And when they give that to you, you get a compact disc or paper. That's how you transfer that information. So you can physically carry a compact disc or paper to the next facility to say, hey, this is my personal information that I have thankfully been allowed to share with you through the people that actually own it. In a Web 3.0 phase, we're going to actually own that data. It will never leave your personal healthcare wallet unless you say it's okay to leave your healthcare wallet. And you can commercialize your data. The, the hospital systems or Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Google, IBM, they can go to that individual and say, hey, we will pay you X for access to your data because we're trying to create a cohort to create a new study. And we will continue, we'll pay you in crypto, we'll pay you in fiat, and you can actually commoditize your data if you choose. Or you could say, no, I don't want to be a part of that. that that's the, the new generation. And from a, from a physician's perspective, you don't have to deal with insurance. You don't have to deal with a hospital. You can actually go directly with a patient and treat a patient directly if you, if you so choose. So it completely revolutionizes the way healthcare is done from, from the entire system, from the physician side and from the patient side. So I, I, I love that in, in the sense that in some ways, like it, I see the, 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 the ability to be forgotten. Like I don't want these things to be used against me. I don't want these things to um, jack up my healthcare costs or be labeled. The only thing that sticks out in my mind, because 90% there, is that if people don't want to contribute their information and that information can be used to make more advancements, like is that going to clog up the pipeline a little bit of the massive amount of data that we can harvest if people are holding out for you need to re, you need to compensate me for my advanced sickle cell leukemia or you know whatever ailment they may have is that going to be a do you foresee that as a problem or uh, no there's enough data points out there of people that will freely give it i don't see that as a problem because right now and that's why i go back to that statement that consent is power because the way it's being done right now is people's data people's personal information other people are making money off of that. And if you incorporate everyone in the community into that, if you tell a good enough story, people want to help. People are good at their core. And if they see, look what's going on with Ukraine and the things of that situation, there's a huge upswell of people from all over the world, Asia, Africa, EU, Latin America, the US. People see that and people want to help and they're trying to help in any way they can because that is really at the core People want to do right. People want to help other people. If you give people the choice, say, hey, all it takes is for you to give me access to your data and I'm paying you and this is going to help your child or your grandparent or your neighbor, for the most part, I think the vast majority of people will say yes. I don't see this as being a deterrent. I see this only greater incentivization. I can help and make money as opposed to I don't get a choice at all and you're making money off of me already. Yeah, that's a good point. And I'm, I'm even thinking about the more rare, the, I mean, first of all, 
I don't want to dismiss of like, oh, I've got a rare disease. I'm going to cash in. I'm not suggesting that at all. But if there is like a, hey, your your information might a save lives and b some of the information that we might monetize down the road, you're a chief researcher, and I, I like being compensated that. I I, I understand that, uh, and I think that's that's yeah. You put that in a way that I that makes a lot more sense to me. Well, the other thing is that what we've learned, you know, everyone was thinking. One of the reasons IBM failed, there's many reasons why IBM failed in the healthcare, and we can go into those at a, another episode. But um, one of the things that we're learning in AI and medicine is that point of care medicine, what you get from a hospital visit, is not enough to actually have the, the amazing medical breakthroughs that, that, you, that AI requires. It's a lot of data, but it's not enough data because health and disease is complex. How do we transition from being a healthy, well person to being a person with early stage diabetes, late stage diabetes, complications of diabetes? How does that progress? Point of care, going seeing your doctor once a year or once every five years, that's not enough data to actually understand how that disease progresses. So you actually need a panomic perspective of an individual, multi-omic perspective. The only way you can do that is if you combine point of care data with all the other data, uh, things like your environment, environmental data, what you're eating, how you move, you know, where you were, where you were born. There's so many other aspects to how disease progresses. And that's why giving people the choice of, hey, we need your data, it's not just your point of care, it's really everything else that's going into that. That's when AI can really start giving us these, these amazing breakthroughs that we're all hoping that it does in both diagnostic and therapeutic uh, environments. Um, again, question of naivete. Um, the, I know that some of these things have already begun. What are some of the first steps for more normalization and mass adoption of medical records and research and data on the blockchain, like what, what, like give me some of the dominoes that need to really fall, not not just in a yeah for like mass adoption. So we have about fifteen hundred facilities uh, across Southeast Asia that are already on the chain, uh, and we're now incorporating. We're in Latin America. We've we've brought on twenty five clinics. Uh, in the last month alone, and we've already have MOUs with uh, Ivory Coast, um, the Republic of Congo, uh, as well as Botswana and Nigeria. So in outside the U.S., it's already there. It's already happening. We already have over 16 million patients on, on the chain uh, that are already accessing it and being able to use it. Because at the end of the day, it's just a regular electronic health record. Uh, so you ask everything else that you would have through your typical patient portal here in the U.S. That's all we provide. The, the, the difference is that the data is housed on your personal digital health wallet and you get to you get a choice as to who accesses it. You can either get alerted every time someone requests to get access or you could say give certain criteria or oh, if it's a, you know, a medical provider, then I don't need to be alerted. You will still see it, obviously, because it's on the chain but I don't need to be alerted every time a medical provider wants my data, as opposed to I want to be alerted or I want to be accessible to, let's say, third-party vendors, advertising, you know, drug companies, all that. Uh, so outside of the U.S., it's already here. This is a real thing. Inside the U.S., that's a more complex story because you have, you have a lot of entrenched industries uh, and companies that are going to fight back against this. So it's really, it's really has to take a groundswell of, of everyday people saying, I want my data back. I want this. I want to access to this. 
Um, and the U.S. is going to be, it's going to take time. Outside of the U.S., they have the luxury that they can skip. There's that old saying in Asia, jump the landline. You know, they can skip the mistakes that we've made. And so outside the U.S., it's, it's already here. Inside the U.S., it's going to take, it's going to take people like you, people that follow you, uh, to say, no, we, we want better. And we want uh, ownership of our own data, whether that's personal healthcare data, whether that's search data, whether it's social media data. But there's going to be a lot of lobbying against that, so it's going to be a fight. Uh, I do not want to get you in hot water, um, but I will say, like, mm, how do I go about this? Which, by the way, all of a sudden the helicopter tours have really picked up, which <laughs> good for us. It's a beautiful day here in, in San Juan. Um, but what are some legacy companies that are trying to adapt a like like maybe epic or somebody like that and b how um how much disruption and innovation do you see from from companies that aren't known yet uh the first one's easy that's zero uh legacy companies don't want to adapt why because they make money off your data they make money by not sharing your data i mean really the hold on like I i'm shocked by that like, because even oil companies are like, you know what? We should probably start looking into hydrogen or, you know, algae. I mean, like, that shocks me that they're not wanting to adapt yet. So what what coding language is Epic coded in? Oh, I don't know. Why don't you, have, you can ask everyone once he posts this, you know, put some comments underneath here and people can look it up. It's an ancient coding language. And the reason why it's an ancient, there's pros to it because you can't, it's, it's harder to hack because not many people know that language anymore. Um, but uh, realistically, that they have no incentive to change. They're incentivized to not change um, because they see, so what I was about to say is uh, the whole uh, Obamacare, you know, the ACA, Affordable Care Act, the whole concept was that, I mean, it did a great things uh, such as it caused digitization of healthcare, which we didn't have before that. It forced people to actually digitize. Um, it was supposed to be better for artificial intelligence by having, you know, more granularity and ICD codes to be able to do machine learning and better machine learning. But one of the things it was also supposed to do is that, and it, it has, where it caused different vendors like Epic's, the Cerner's, the, the other ones like that, and there's plenty of other ones, uh, to force them to share data. And they'll, they will share data, but the way they share it is it's non-functional. So, and they do it because they're incentivized to force people to use their products and not have interconnectivity of their products. So even though they quote unquote can share their data, they don't. And when they do, it's non-functional because it, it's incentivizing to them from an economic perspective that other hospital systems have to get their system for that data to be transferred easily and without having any hiccups. So they're incentivized to not be able to have interconnectivity, inter which reduces our options of where we can go with our data and how quickly we can move with our data. And it causes us to be stuck in that healthcare system. And every, I'm sure anyone that's experienced this knows this. When you try to go from one, you might have two or three major hospital systems at most in wherever you live, even in a major city. Um, and you try to get your records from one place to another, it is such a hassle, such a headache, so cumbersome. And it is by design. They don't want you to be able to have the ability to do that because it's incentivizing to them if they force the other hospital system to acquire their 
application. It's millions upon millions upon millions of dollars. And then they can use that data internally to create AI applications that they then resell to the same hospitals. Or they collaborate with a Google or an IBM and do the same thing. So the naive uh, innovation fan in me goes, wow, there's an opportunity for so much innovation. Uh, the realism and the uh, uh, hearing it in your voice and reading it in your body language, it looks like there's probably a lot of protectionism and a lot of lobbying and a lot of this ain't going to happen because there's so much massive power. Oh, it will happen, but it's going to happen because of a groundswell of people will make it happen. Um, and because that's the future. The future is Web3. Web the future is decentralization. It's realistically, it's giving power back to individuals. People want that. And what's the realistic, the reality of is it will happen. And the reality is that these companies will be the blockbusters and the Kodaks of the future. I, okay. So back when I was like, really, that's what I keep coming back to of like, I know that if I ran one of these large organizations that they have no incentive for you to want to do this, that's exactly why I'd want to do it for that first mover advantage to be able to, at minimum, just let's go with the snarky level of like, we care and we want this new world and we want you to own your own information. Uh, or, or even just on the altruistic side of like, I would, I know that I would want to do that uh, of like in the short term, we may be giving away some things and we're not going to monetize things we've already done, but in the long term, we're going to set ourselves up and apart from everybody else. I, I don't know. That's just, from this very limited perspective and not being in as deep as you are, uh, that's, that, that'd be some of my thought. So I would agree with you, and that's why you see that with companies like Google right, or Facebook where they, they're more innovative and they're newer. They still have kind of that startup feel and environment to them. So what are they doing? A lot of them are investing in Web3 applications, right? And that's one of the... Th fears that people have about web3 that you're you're moving to you're moving to decentralization one, one massive company to the next yeah day. exactly but they're but the, who controls it private equity the big tech that are investing so but they are the more innovative and they're seeing the future and they're trying to be a part of the future you on the flip side it's a cultural thing on the flip side it's and this is one of the reasons going back to ibm one of the reasons ibm health failed uh, or wasn't as successful as it could have been is because you had a traditional company, a very large Fortune 100 company that was trying to act like a startup but didn't have a startup mentality. You can't act like a startup and then go hire you know, the executives from established healthcare companies that all they're, all they're trained to do is 3% incremental change. Right? If you do 3% better, you're successful. That's not a startup. You, you have to have that startup mentality, which you're talking about, like, oh, opportunity, pain point, solution, you know, nirvana, money, we can do it, success. But when you're, when you are a company like that and you bring in people with that mentality, you can't, you're, it's a completely different. And the established electronic healthcare records companies that are out there, they have a more of a mentality of Blockbuster. How did Blockbuster make all its money in its last two years? Late fees. Late fees. That was their business model. Late fees. I can survive half a million dollars worth of late fees. It's not a chump change. It is a real economic model, but it's not seeing where the future is going. Yeah, very short-sighted. I also, something just really dawned on me, you genius you. Uh, as, as you like, well, cause you're like, like, oh, you want to talk about uh, like your realm and the entrepreneurial thing you, and NASA and singularity. 
I was just about ready to say, do some of these startups have a chance? And I now understand it a lot more. And I now like, like, cause you're, and this is, this is going to sound like a backhanded compliment or maybe even demeaning you're dabbling in so many things because I now am starting to see so many different opportunities on everywhere. Um, so this is, and this is like, I guess a, a tee up for like, tell, tell some of these other things you're working on and you're involved with, cause some of them are sounding like it, it's yeah. From the NASA stuff to Singularity, like give us a taste of some of these other things you're 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 looking into and working on. So the re- the reason I do a lot of different things, I would say I would start with is I'm a big proponent of being similar to Leonardo da Vinci. There's a talk I give about Leonardo and use him as kind of the avatar of the way I believe people should live. Uh, of how you do things to remain innovative, not just at the individual level, at the enterprise level, and even at a government level. That I like to say it's it's more important to be a jack of all trades and a master as needed nowadays more more than ever because things are innovating and things are progressing so quickly that the only way to survive is to be able to be malleable and to understand that being an expert in a field no longer is what's important. It's being able to be malleable to the environment and being able to take things from different fields and apply them in a new way that drives innovation. That is the goal. And I try to personify that and I try to live that in my life where I'm constantly seeking out new types of challenges and new things that I'm trying to learn because, and Leonardo said this, that you know, we ask people about Leonardo, you know, what was he? And people say, oh, some people say he's an artist, some people say he's an engineer, he's a scientist, he's an anatomist. And he was all of those things at the same time. And him learning one field, him learning architecture made him a better artist. Him learning art made him a better anatomist. Him learning anatomy made him a better artist. Him learning botany, it just one thing begat the other begat the other. So understanding that STEAM mentality, science, technology, engineering, arts, and math, going out and constantly learning new fields actually improves your other fields. And it complements them. And it allows you to see new perspectives. So we all talk about how do you create innovative teams is, well, you bring different people from different uh, ideas, right? Put them at the table and give them a problem. And because they all come from a different perspective, whether that's gender, gender identity, whether it's training, socioeconomic status, birth order, where they were born, soci- I mean, all these things go into it. We, we were listening to the Aspen Institute folks, and they think about diversity in such a unique and granular way because all those different things that create us and make us unique add value to our thought process and that thought process adds value to the solution set that you will come with so that's why i try to be involved in all these things now to give you specifics i've worked with the hyperloop project i've have been head of innovation for them i've been a consultant for the nasa itech uh, project, which is an accelerator for public-private partnerships. I've worked with different companies working on different NASA projects, such as working with extremophiles and uh, trying to think about forward contamination, reverse contamination for, you know, what do we do to prevent us from uh, contaminating evolution in another planet, and what do we do if we actually accidentally bring back new viruses or bacteria here. Uh, so I've worked on all those, those types of things, using DNA to evaluate where that bacteria may come from, whether it's earthbound, whether it's extraterrestrial. 
Uh, I've worked on things for singularity, thinking about uh, exponential medicine. What is the, the future human going to be look, look like both here on Earth, combination of biomechatronics? What is it going to look like when we evolve on, on Mars or another planet? Anti-aging. How do we, how do, what, what are the kind of things that we can do to reduce aging, to reverse aging, potentially live forever? What if we get a choice to where we die um, or how we die if we have to die? Uh, how do we transition to that next form of energy? Carbon capture, carbon recycling. Um, I, I work with a company doing that. They're doing now hydrogen, hydrogen uh, synthetic biomining by uh, putting down bacteria into old reservoirs for oil and gas and producing hydrogen, which is the next generation of, of fuel. Um, and they, they developed that called Gold Hydrogen. Look them up, some Vita factory. Uh, and then media, entertainment, understanding that the future needs to be diverse. That if we're going to be remain innovative, especially in the United States, diversity is what gives us our differentiator. We have to bring everyone to the economic table. We have to bring everyone to that innovative table, give them a voice, and then create innovation through that diversity. Because if we don't, we can see the consequences of, of countries that don't do that, that keep that just one single type of individual making decisions. And then that leads to a lot of horrific consequences as we're seeing at the global stage right now. There's so much there. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap this up by uh, you can answer this. Um, I, I keep getting struck with the fact that if I had to boil everything down to some of the, your pursuits, which we've covered are many, I, I, and I'm not trying to be I'm not trying to boil things down for the sake of boiling down, but an intense, immense curiosity. I'm interested in this area. I'm interested in that area. I mean, like that, that I want you to give honor and some time to either say a parent, a teacher, a mentor, because, and I'm sure some of it was born, right? Some people are born curious, but I can tell there's been some, uh, there's been some mentorship in this regard. I, I want you to now to give some honor to a couple people, one, two, who knows, but where did some of this insatiable curiosity come from? I have to give it to the the island that we're sitting in right now, man. Look, look at this. Look where we are. And this is where I was raised. This is where I was born. My grandmother, my grandfather here, abuelo y abuela, they were hugely influential to me, as they are to many Hispanic families. But, um, you know, I still... I still try to do things the way they taught me to do things. I still try to do things right by them. Uh, my grandfather always just say, I'll say it in English so I don't have to translate for you guys, but um, Jose, for every dollar you make, you know, whatever you're doing, make sure you give three back. Make sure that you're always giving more than you're ever taking. Grandma was the kind of person that she grew up super poor. We were very, very poor, but I never realized that we were poor. She never... She was always the type of person that always had something to give, regardless of how little she had. And she was always the type of person that people would go to because she would always help. And the insatiable curiosity is really more about how can I give back more? How can I make a bigger difference? Um, I could have, medicine is fine. Helping one patient at a time is fine. Helping a, you know 100,000 patients that I might see over a lifetime of a strain in clinical medicine would have been a very valuable thing to give to society but there are so many things that I felt like I can still do I can do more and I wanted to 
give back as much as I could, and I feel like if I don't leave it all, it's kind of like sports analogy. If you don't leave it all on the court, you know, I don't want to have any regrets, and and I want to I want to pursue those things and find new ways to help and make sure that everyone voices is heard and that we carry those voices with us. And I carry the voice of my grandmother. I carry the voice of my grandfather, and they're they're the two probably greatest influences in my life that I still. I'm I'm not a religious person, but I do speak with them, and I do always always ask, you know, hey, you know, I hope you're proud. You know, they don't speak to me. I'm not listen. I'm not hearing voices, but I do I do carry them with them. We all do. We all carry the people that have made a mark on us. They we carry their energy. We carry their we carry their spirit, and I try to take that spirit where, wherever I go. Um, and a recent mentor, I, I would have to say, it was probably Bill Eisler, who is. Um, the ex-president for the Fred Rogers production company and uh, we touched on how I do some STEM education and media aspect and I was sitting with him and he was telling me Jose you know I don't like to speak for people that have passed but I have to be honest like if Fred was here he would be very proud of what you're doing and I broke down I started crying and I was like if we're good enough for Mr. Rogers I think I'm doing okay I'd lose it too if I thought Mr. Rogers would think it. Uh, yeah, yeah. On a personal note, I I, I uh, was traveling back with my daughter. Uh, we it was a transatlantic trip and uh, watched the documentary, and uh, it was embarrassing on how hard I was crying because people were staring at me and they're like, and then Ava looked at me and she's like, and then she started watching it and the shit. Yeah. So uh, believe me, I'm feeling that emotion too. Cause if Fred Rogers, even the thought of him going, I'm proud of you, Jose, right. I, that, that'd, that'd make me choke up too. I, I've only bought two movies in the last like 10 years. You know, when you used to buy VHS oh, yeah. DVDs that the documentary Fred Rogers documentary is one of the two hidden figures was the other one. Those are the two movies I've bought in the last like 10 years. Every time I watch that documentary, I, I cry. Every time, yeah. I, I don't get me wrong. I love the Tom Hanks one, right? Great one good. as well. It was good. But that, but hearing from Fred and the people that were in his life, yeah. I, I Those last ninety seconds when they take that moment of silence, think thinking about that person, that person that you'd like to say thank you. Oh my God, I get emotional just. I. We'll, we'll talk later. <laughs> I, I, like, there's not enough niceness in the world, and that man personified niceness in a way that he broke down people. That even if you were in a bad mood, and I, I do, that's one thing that. Welcome to movie talk, but <laughs> but the, even in the movie, the, the 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 you know the reporter who was crabby and not breaking down. Anyway, well, I I, I, I thank you so much for for having that moment because um, I agree. Sometimes you know I, I know that my grandmother shaped me in ways that I don't want to talk about because I do get emotional yeah. uh, but you know honoring that and, and, and knowing that's what carries you forward but just knowing that they that they in this island have made you insanely curious and I and again I'm not trying to be dismissive of all the skills you have but I just kept going like you're just curious about everything yeah. that's part of your superpower and I, I wanted to honor that and uh, and, and just uh, you know hear where that mindset uh, comes from is, is important to me so I will make sure that we have your bio in there. If you guys want to connect with him, check out his work. We'll we'll have all those links in there. Uh, but uh, check out this man's work uh, and, and look back on this podcast. You're like, holy cow, they were talking about that at last year. And uh, some of these things have come to pass. So, uh, Dr. Jose Murray, man, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Don. <laughs>